morning and welcome to this edition of Legal and Business Week in Review. This is UTLRadio.com, your business success and legal information station, and I'm your host, Peter Lamont. Today is January 25th. It is the Monday after the East Coast was hit with a pretty big snowstorm. I think it was the second uh, biggest snowstorm in the history of New York. I think I saw that on the news this weekend. I'll tell you, there was a good deal of snow, and uh, thank goodness that I finally bought a snowblower a few years ago because I don't know how I would have managed to shovel the amount of snow that came down. Um, you know, it's always, for me, I mean, I'm, I'm not really a winter sports kind of guy. I like hockey and, and winter e-sports, winter e-sports, but um, I don't ski and that sort of thing. So it's fun to see the snow, but then it just sits around and starts getting black and there's ice and that's when things start going going bad. But um, it certainly was nice to see it and it was kind of nice being forced to stay home on Saturday because it just, I feel like we're always, and I don't just mean me and my family, but everybody is just nonstop running around and sometimes it's nice to be forced to do nothing and, and to hang out and to uh, unwind a little bit. So that's a nice thing. All right, so we've got a lot of stories to get through today, so we might as well get going. Uh, before I do, just a couple announcements. First of all, I want to remind everybody to make sure that you are subscribing to this podcast. It's available on iTunes. It's also available on Stitcher and Blog Talk Radio. And make sure also that you are subscribed to the YouTube channel. We've been trying to put up a lot of fresh content, a lot of new things that we're working on in 2016 on the YouTube channel. And if you're only subscribed to the podcast and not the YouTube channel or vice versa, then you're missing out on stuff, and I don't want you to do that. Also be aware that utlradio.com has been completely rebuilt, redesigned, and uh, we've received a lot of positive feedback on the look of the new site. Hopefully you guys will check it out and see what we've done over there. Um, Really what we're trying to do in 2016 is to make utlradio.com a self-help legal and business resource center. I want you to be able to go to the site and get all the information that you need in order to help you start, run, or maintain a business or to handle legal issues that arise either in business or in your personal life. How to defend a lawsuit, how to do discovery, how to file a motion, how to write like a lawyer. I want you to learn how to do these things without having to go to law school Because there are so many times in life when you just can't bring a lawyer on board to help you with things. And that doesn't mean you should suffer. That doesn't mean that you should be at a disadvantage because the other side has a lawyer and you don't. All you need to know is some of the the tips and tricks and tools of the trade and you can do a good job. And um, in 2015, I know I've said this before, but I just want to say it again. I was so pleased with the amount of people who came forward and said, we watched your video, we listened to a podcast, and we, we did what you were saying to do, and it worked out favorably for us. And no compliment, in my eyes, is better than that one, to know that we are actually helping people, to know that you, know, you can do it on your own, and these calls that we're getting from the people that, that are doing it, it's proof positive, and so we're really excited about that. I would really be... Uh, grateful if you would pass along this information and let people know that there is a self-help resource center out there for you when you've got legal issues or business issues and you need somebody 
and that person happens to be you. You need to be self-reliant, and, and you need answers. That's what we're hoping to do. We're going to be expanding the site big time throughout the year. We're going to be putting up training courses and all sorts of things that can be helpful. So um, please make sure you visit often. All right, let's start off today with a story that, I don't know, to me it's disturbing on so many levels. And that's this issue with Flint, Michigan, and the water crisis. Now, for those of you who don't know, um, roughly two years ago, the state ordered the city of Flint to switch its water supply from Lake Huron to the, I believe it was the Flint River. And the whole idea of this was supposedly temporary, but it was primarily aimed at uh, or aimed at saving money. Right, isn't every decision that the government makes for the most part, I say that facetiously, aimed at saving money. So what happens is Flint's river is just contaminated. I mean, there's just the water is just so bad you can't drink it. And ultimately, after two years of maintaining this water source, the pipes that are carrying the water start to corrode and erode. And, you know, lo and behold, what do you find in the drinking water? but lead, high levels of lead, and now they're saying there's instances of Legionnaire's disease, which they've seen before, but now they're, they're linking them to the drinking water. Now, Legionnaire's is a respiratory bacterial disease, and it comes from drinking water. So, you know, it seems to make sense. It doesn't need a, a medical degree for me or, um, you know, a scientific degree to be able to put two and two together and say Legionnaire's disease of course, it's coming from the water. But what's upsetting here is this. Um, you know, there's all these multiple issues arising out of the Flint water thing. So first of all, you've got the fact that the government is essentially screwing over people, all the people of Flint, Michigan, to save money and, you know, contaminating and causing serious health risks for so many people. So that's issue one. Issue two is, how do the people who are affected ever, ever recover? And I don't mean recover from health perspective, but how do you sue somebody? Or how do, who do you sue even to say, wait a minute, this isn't fair? And I'll, I'll get to that in a minute. But the idea of culpability, the idea of somebody being responsible, how do you point a finger at somebody when there are so many people that had a hand in this? state government, federal government, DEA, local government, the mayor, the mayor's aide, where do you point the finger? You know, I, I see this as being completely different from the bridge scandal that happened here in New Jersey with Governor Christie. So for me, this is troubling because there's nobody to point the finger at. I mean, talk about a pass-the-buck scenario. I don't think you get one better than this. So that's the second issue that concerns me. The third issue is this idea that's been raised by a lot of media sources, including the New York Times, what if the makeup of Flint, the geographic or the demographic makeup of Flint, Michigan, was primarily white, would they have allowed this to happen? And the argument or the theory that's being um, you know, set forth is that most of the residents of Flint, Michigan, or a large poor, a portion of them, the demographics are primarily poor african-americans and so is that a factor and that's just even more troubling than anything I, I mean are we a government are we a country where 
we look at the risk and we say, wait a minute, you know, these people are poor, or are they saying these people are African-American? We don't know. And, and it's, it's just a very, very sad state of affairs. But what's upsetting to me is the fact that you've got kids, babies, infants that have been drinking this water that have lead poisoning. You know, and that's, that's upsetting because lead is something that I think we can control for sure. I mean, back when lead paint was being used, now we've got all these EPA regulations to prevent against lead paint. There's EPA lead paint laws, a federal law that says that you know, if a contractor is going to come into your home and they're going to touch or disturb an area, and I can't remember the exact specifics, the measurement, but if they're going to go in and touch an area of your house and your house is built before, I think it's 1972, they have to be certified as lead compliant. They've got to be able to go in and do lead testing. So if we're able to do that, why would we contaminate water? And I really believe that, I don't know if it's, if it's racially driven. I don't know if it is um, financially driven in the sense that we don't care about the people of Flint because they're, they're poor. Um, it's definitely financially driven at some level. But who benefits from the finances? You know, I think when you're looking at budgetary issues in a government, especially in a local government, yeah, there's only so much money to go around. And don't you think that most of these politicians want to maintain their status? They want to stay in government. They want to stay in power. And so if they can save money and benefit or you know, appear to benefit the community in one or another way, don't they do it? And I'm not saying that everybody's corrupt, but look, I think politics, I, I don't know that you can separate politics from corruption. I just don't. Because while there's this, um, I don't know, the needs of the many issue, I feel as though there's so much self-interest in, in you know, the uh, underpinnings of the, the political agenda, whether it's parties or it's individuals, I just feel as though it's not on the up and up. And I think that most of you out there would, would agree with me on that fact, that politics and corruption seem to go hand in hand. So that leads me back to where we are right now. So you've got all these people in Flint who are paying for water, paying their water bill for water that they can't drink. And of course, uh, and I think in this case, rightfully so, a class action has been filed. Three, in fact, have been filed, and they're seeking, um, you know, all sorts of money damages and related damages, not for the lead poisoning. And I want to make that clear. It's because the residents of Flint are being forced to pay for water that they can't drink, and then they have to go out and they have to pay for bottled water, which unfortunately a lot of them can't afford. So, I mean, talk about a, a crisis. You know, the, the president has declared the state of emergency in Flint. Uh, I don't know to what extent financial dollars or, or federal dollars, I should say, are coming in to aid these people in the way that they need to be aided. I, I don't know, but certainly something needs to be done here uh, because this is a disaster, both from an environmental standpoint and from a humanitarian standpoint. And really, it goes back to the fact that somebody is to blame. I want to play you a sound 
bite uh, from lawyers talking about this class action that they filed. Let's see if this is queued up. Uh, so hold on here while I get this going. All of the bills that have been issued for usage of water invalid because the water has not been fit for its intended purpose. Essentially, the residents have been getting billed for water that they cannot use. We have filed three lawsuits. They have all been victimized by these unconstitutional actions of these public officials. We represent four Flint families uh, who are representing all people who have had these, this kind of misconduct inflicted on them. Sworn testimony by these public officials. And it's not going to be easy questions. We have heard from over 500 individuals who have registered in this case. They are unable to afford the water that they have to purchase because they can't use the water in their home. How they don't have the money or transportation means to go and get water. We're hearing about the harmful uh, physical impact that this is having on individuals. People, of course, are talking about rashes. They're talking about hair loss. They're talking about seizures that never happened before. We're talking to women that have had miscarriages um, that are not explainable as a result of this. We're talking to people who are psychologically having breakdowns based on the anxiety of not knowing how this is going to impact their children moving forward in the future or impact their own health. So we want. So uh, that's you know from uh, ABC News, and and this is um, lawyers who have filed these class actions representing four families in Flint. But is it enough? And really what it comes down to is who is to blame ultimately for this? So let's assume for a minute that there's no way that this lawsuit fails. And I say that because there are times when a lawsuit is so proper, meaning, in other words, how could this lawsuit against the city and the mayor fail when it's clear that this has occurred, that this contamination has occurred. How do you say no? I mean, I'm not talking necessarily about all of the evidence, but look, I'll say this to you. Law is not fair, okay? It's not fair. The justice system is not fair. We all know that you win a lawsuit by convincing a jury or another attorney or a judge that you can prove liability and you can prove damages. That's how lawsuits work. In a case like this, you know, it's tough because imagine the public outrage if a class action talking about people being forced to pay for water they can't drink. I mean, that seems to be straightforward. We're not talking about class actions saying here that you caused birth defects and you're, you know, responsible for the health crisis in Flint. We're simply saying that the city is making you pay for water that they knew or should have known was contaminated. I think that's straightforward. I think that that class action, I think that survives. What troubles me is that somebody here is at fault. There is somebody here who said, hey, look, this is a good idea. Let's save money. And there's also somebody that said, wait a minute, you know, I just want to let you know that this water has high lead levels or this water is corrosive, and we didn't use any anti-corrosive treatment in the pipes. Somebody had to say that, and somebody had to hear that and then say, you know what, don't worry about it. It's going to cost too much money. Who is that? How are we ever going to get to that point 
where we are holding somebody responsible for the negligence, and that's what this is. I would even go so far as to say gross negligence or criminal misconduct, but who is going to be left holding the bag? There's nobody to point to because it's the state, it's the federal government, and it's the local government. And maybe we can find a scapegoat and point to the mayor of Flint, Michigan. Will that bring justice? Probably not. Should he be responsible? Yes. And I don't know if you've heard, but Jeb Bush is talking about how uh, wonderful it's being handled, wonderfully it's being handled by the mayor. You know, um, Jeb Bush, come on. What are you talking about? Handled properly. None of this has been handled properly. This is years of negligence, and nobody is going to be able to step up and take care of these people. And you know what? Even if there was somebody who said, hey, it was me, it was me, I knew it was bad, and I did it anyway, what good is that going to do for all of these families who are affected with health crisis? You know, I would argue that the most important thing that we have as humans is our health. Because without it, we're dead. Without it, we've got nothing. If you've got your health, then you've got a chance. You've got a chance to succeed in life. You've got a chance to pull yourself up from whatever turmoil you're experiencing. You can be whatever you want. You can be successful. You can fight back and you can make something of your life. But you've got to have health. And all of these people who are suffering in Flint because of the negligence, the gross negligence of government, talk about a massive fail. That's what I see this as being. Government has failed the people of Flint, Michigan. Very, very um, disturbing, if you ask me. Now, let's hop over, still staying with this topic for one second, to this idea of... Um, you know, I think the New York Times refers to it as environmental racism. What do you think about that idea? Environmental racism. You know, uh, the question that the New York Times asks, and I'm going to read it directly, is if Flint were rich and mostly white, would Michigan state government have responded more quickly and aggressively to complaints about its lead polluted water? Now, I don't know the answer to that. What do you think? I mean, let's face facts. The population of Flint is primarily African-American. The income level is low. So it's, it's fair to say that, you know, we're talking about a lower income, um, you know, area primarily occupied by African-Americans. That doesn't mean that there aren't other, um, you know, races that populate Flint, but Where's the proof to this? I don't, I don't know. I mean, I don't know if this is a decision based upon revenue and money and greed only, or is this a racist thing? I'm not sure. Uh, a lot of civil rights advocates out there are basically saying that it, it, it's environmental racism. Um, you know, this, this term environmental racism, according to the New York Times, is coined in the 1980s and refers to the disproportionate exposure of blacks to polluted air, water, and soil. It's considered the result of poverty and segregation that has relegated many blacks and other racial minorities to some of the most industrialized or dilapidated environments. 
I do believe that that is true. I don't know if it's true right now. Uh, no doubt in my mind that at some point over the course of our, our, our country's history, segregation um, is something that was on people's minds with respect to compartmentalizing areas, geographic regions. Some of it has to do, I think, with the fact that people settled. So if you've got a high minority, uh, let's say it's Russian immigrants, and maybe they'll settle in a particular area of New York. That's different. That's because they all came together and they figured, let's have this community. This idea of racial um, segregation, I think prior to the civil rights movement, prior to uh, Martin Luther King, absolutely, I totally buy this. Um, you know, I, I think that what concerns me is this idea that, um, you know, right now it's a result, a pure result of, of racism. I don't know that I buy that. I definitely believe that um, perhaps it's less important to take care of poor areas and I really think that that's what uh, is going on here. I think that we're talking about, um, you know, an area where it's so poor, what do we care, right? What do we care because these people don't have any money? What are they going to do? They're going to go get a lawyer, you know? Are they going to even say anything? That's where I think this is going to go. That being said, you know, I think you've got to face the fact that in, in today's world where I would love to think that racism is dead, I, I, unfortunately, I can't say that. Um, it, it's, it's really troubling. You know, I'll tell you quickly, and I know we've spent a lot of time on this story, but I just think this story is so important to discuss. I'll tell you that my kids, you know, my four-year-old, he doesn't see the difference between people of different races because they're all people to him. He doesn't know that you know, somebody's Hispanic or somebody's um, African-American. All he knows is they're people, and he likes them because they're good people or bad people. This idea of environmental racism, I think, has roots back prior to the civil rights movement, and then I think what happens is people get stuck. People get, um, you know, trapped in an area, and they can't get out, and I think that that has a lot to do with this. Whether or not I agree with the New York Times assessment that Flint, Michigan is environmental racism, I don't know. I think it has more to do with the fact that people are poor and that when officials in the government are going to decide that they're going to set forth some sort of money-saving plan, that the people they care least about are the people that are going to cause, at least in their minds, the least amount of trouble for them, and that, generally speaking, is people who are poor. That, by the way, let me just interrupt, that is why I'm so proud of what we're doing at utlradio.com. I can't stand this idea that if you don't have a lawyer to represent you because you can't afford it, that somebody else is going to take advantage of you. That's absolute crap. But that's what goes on because this is the reality of our country. So if you're being sued and there's a lawyer on the other side, don't you think just like 
the government officials here in Flint, he's saying to himself, ah, I've got a leg up, I've got an advantage, and I'm going to take you to the mat, and I'm going to pin you? Of course, because they know that you, generally speaking, are not going to have the knowledge of procedure and practice of the law. I hate that. I want to level the playing field because this is not fair. It's not fair that anybody, because of finances, should not be afforded proper use of our legal system, as flawed as it is. And this just makes me really enraged to see people treated on on an uneven playing field. So my biggest qualm here with Flint, and then I'm going to wrap up on this story, is that there's nobody who will accept responsibility and there's nobody who will be able to be you know uh, uh or carry the culpability that's necessary here the gross negligence in flint will go largely unpunished why because there's too many people to point fingers at federal state and local that's where that goes it's very very frustrating okay Whew. now that that's over let's hop into something that uh, is interesting. Uh, I don't know how many of you have followed Sean Penn's secret meeting with El Chapo. You know, El Chapo, obviously the uh, wanted or at one time wanted fugitive, the drug kingpin. You know, when you talk about drugs, you talk about El Chapo. So I'm sure you have heard over the past few weeks that Sean Penn had a secret meeting with El Chapo. Um, now, you know, the issue is, should Sean Penn face any sort of criminal action for his meeting with El Chapo? That's the main point. Uh, the second question that I have is, why would Sean Penn want to meet with El Chapo? I have no idea why a celebrity, or anyone for that matter, would want to go and meet with a felon, a fugitive, a drug lord, and conduct an interview. I, I still can't understand, and, and I'm trying because, you know, I have a journalism background. I'm still trying to put myself into the mind of the journalist that interviewed Osama bin Laden. I, I, I don't know. I can't separate, I, I guess, my um, pride as an American citizen, if you want, would, would accept that, uh, from this idea of journalistic integrity why would I want to go interview a terrorist? Ratings, sure. But is it worth it? You know, am I going to be known as the guy that interviewed El Chapo and Sean Penn? Come on. I mean, I know that he swings way left. I know that he's very liberal. And I, I don't understand why he would do this because uh, I, I, he doesn't need the publicity. I mean, he's still alive and kicking in, in Hollywood, so I don't understand why he would do this, but let's look at the question that's raised by his meeting with El Chapo. You know, does he have anything to worry about? Is, are there any criminal consequences to his meeting with El Chapo? Now, remember that America has been trying to capture El Chapo as a fugitive for years and years and can't. Sean Penn... He has, has him in his, like, his Rolodex. Hey, El Chapo, what are you doing next week? I'd like to have a, a little meeting with you. I don't, know how, I don't know how they do it. I really don't. But he does it. So now let's face the legal question. And that question is, is he at all guilty or responsible 
for anything that he did with respect to meeting with El Chapo. Now, let's talk about the First Amendment. The First Amendment, freedom of speech, freedom of the press, we've got to talk about that because it comes into play here. Now, I think you might be surprised to know that knowingly visiting a fugitive is not a crime. I mean, you would think, right, that maybe, I don't know, maybe not. I I guess from a a legal standpoint, I, I understand this law and I agree with this law that knowingly meeting with a fugitive can't necessarily bring criminal liability to you. But at the same time, I think you should be beaten with a rubber hose because it's stupid. That's what I think. I don't understand why you would do that. That's the equivalent of saying, here is a uh, convicted child molester who is now a fugitive, and I'm going to go interview him. Really? Why is it different that he is a child predator or a rapist? Why is that different from a drug lord? Is it? I don't think so. But would Sean Penn go out and interview a convicted sex offender who is a fugitive from the law? I don't think so. I wouldn't. So I don't understand the El Chapo thing. But sure enough, here we are. Can Sean Penn be responsible? Could he be criminally charged with anything because of his meeting with El Chapo? The answer is no. The answer is no unless, and and this is an important distinction, unless someone can prove that he intended to aid and abet. If he knew that the meeting was, let's say, under surveillance, or he did something to aid and abet El Chapo as a fugitive. In other words, he arranged for a secret you know, method of transportation um, and, and then tried to hide him. That could be aiding and abetting a fugitive. And that, with the proper intent, that can be a crime. Meeting, knowingly meeting with a fugitive is not a crime. You could go and meet with anybody you want and interview them and talk to them as long as you don't aid and abet them in their, you know, uh, I guess, career as a fugitive. Again, I'd love to interview Sean Penn and find out why Sean Penn would interview El Chapo. And I'd love to ask him the question, would you interview a fugitive who was a a convicted sex offender, somebody who was a child molester, who's now a fugitive. Would you find that important? Or are you going to tell me that that's not newsworthy, so I'm not going to go do that? Or do you draw a line in the sand and say, well, that's, you know, that's child molestation. I'm not going to go interview somebody there, but I'll interview somebody that's a drug lord that probably is responsible at some point for getting people killed, getting people addicted to drugs, ruining families, ruining lives. Is there a difference? I don't know. Sean Penn seems to think so. And I don't hate Sean Penn. I'm not a Sean Penn hater. I just don't understand the uh, the, the train of thought here. You know, I, I could almost see it more if he was an up-and-coming celebrity or journalist and he was trying to make a name for himself. Would I agree with it? Probably not. But I could understand why that's being done. I do not understand why somebody in his position would go and do that. I mean, he could go champion something else, but it makes no sense. Okay, now let's move into something that's a little less uh, contentious. My blood pressure will come down a few uh, a few points. 
23 car crashes in five years is that insurance fraud. So let's look at this. What would you do for $55,000? Would you crash your car two dozen times? How about if it was a crime? A man in Utah claimed 23 car accidents in the last five years to collect on insurance, and he's now collecting criminal charges, according to the Associated Press. I'm going to mur- murder his name, but it's uh, Navid Munjazeb got over $55,000 from insurance carriers over the past five years. Now he's added criminal charges to his collection and is looking at 12 counts of insurance fraud, two counts of forgery, and seven counts of reckless endangerment, along with a pattern of unlawful activity after making allegedly false claims. So the Utah, Depart- or the Utah Department of Insurance Fraud Uh, went out and investigated this and found, sure enough, enough evidence to support the fact that this was insurance fraud. So let's talk about this for a second. Um, Well, before I do, let me just give you this statistic. Arrests for insurance fraud in Utah are up 159% over five years, and felony charges for the crime have increased nearly 400%. So what is going on in Utah? I have no idea. And it can't be the Mormon Tabernacle Choir's fault. I don't know what's going on there, but uh, suffice it to say, insurance fraud runs rampant in Utah. Let's talk about insurance fraud for a second. All right, so um, is it unheard of to have somebody deliberately get into a car accident to recover insurance money? No, it happens all the time. And you know, back in the, I want to say, late 80s, early 90s, There was a campaign that was, I can't remember who it was, maybe it was from the insurance commission, but but somebody with some, you know, political poll, I don't remember who it was, um, started this campaign about, about insurance fraud and how it's a crime, and then there were all these billboards put up about, oh, insurance fraud is a crime. But at one point in the late 80s, early 90s, people were crashing their cars. They were having somebody behind them rear-end them, and then they were splitting the insurance money. You know, um, rear-end collisions, the the, the liability is primarily 100% on the person that does the rear-ending. So it's kind of an easy case to to win uh, as long as you have damages. Well, here you've got a guy who has 23 car crashes in five years. I mean, you could be the worst driver ever and still not have 23 car crashes in five years. And he made $55,000. What is astonishing to me is that nobody caught him sooner. Because, you know, when you have insurance fraud claims, if they're injury claims, they generally are going to result in some form of litigation, maybe a statement under oath, maybe a deposition. You'd think it would have come out. I don't know what was going on here. Um, but I want to just talk for a second about insurance fraud. It is a crime. You can go to jail. And there are significant civil penalties for commission of insurance fraud. In New Jersey, I think it is treated very seriously. I had, um, I was involved in a case not too long ago where a woman innocently um, bought a car and then allowed another family to use that car on a regular basis. The car was actually housed at this other person's um, residence. And the 
driver of the car was in an accident and sought recovery under her insurance policy. And the New, Jer- uh, New Jersey Department of Insurance and Banking flagged this as potential fraud, as potential insurance fraud. And they went through a whole investigation. Ultimately, it was determined that, that she didn't do anything uh, intentionally. Uh, but she did violate you know, uh, the administrative code with respect to insurance. Point being is this. You're going to get caught at some point. I don't know how this guy had 23 accidents and didn't get caught, but insurance fraud is a crime, and you can go to jail for insurance fraud. And in 23 accidents, he only made $55,000. I I don't, you know, it had to have been small accidents, some property damage, and then he'd go out and, you know, try to, um, you know, get whatever he could, maybe a few thousand dollars here or there. I don't know that it's really worth it for $55,000 over 23 accidents. What we don't know also is how much money did he have to spend in order to keep perpetrating this fraud? Did he have to get a new car? How did that work? But point being here is that he should go to jail for insurance fraud. Absolutely. And anyone that, that commits insurance fraud, you know, you have to be careful with, with what you're doing. Easy money's not easy money. There's no substitute. You can't go out and take advantage of the system like this so now that's what I've got to say about that. 23 accidents in five years. All right, next, let's hop over to the big state of Texas. Here's an interesting uh, intro. If you're going to have sex with your high school teacher, you probably want to get it on tape. After all, your friends might not believe you if you just told them. So maybe you should record it on your cell phone and share it with a few or 11 of your friends. So here in Texas, uh, Tamara Ramirez was fired from her high school teaching and coaching job after cell phone video of her and a 17-year-old student surfaced last year. While 17 is the age of consent in Texas, Ramirez was indicted under the state statute prohibiting improper relationships between educators and students, which I think is an excellent law and should be adopted in every state because there is a responsibility that teachers have towards our children, regardless of the age of our children. And I think that while it might be okay legally for an adult to, you know, go out and, and um, well, let me take this back. It's not okay, but I understand the law that a 19-year-old could have sex with a 17-year-old in Texas, and because the law says 17 is the age of consent, it's okay. I understand the, the legality of it. But when you are a teacher, when you are tasked with the responsibility of protecting the the children that we give to you during that day, for you to go do something like that, even if it was legally permissible, you should be held accountable. So I definitely think that Texas's law about teachers and the, the responsibility, the duties that they have to our students is something that should be across the board because that is a good law. Um, So here's the interesting part about this. The teacher is suing the student, claiming that his recording of the event was illegal and that its release caused her emotional distress. She filed a lawsuit, and according to the lawsuit, she claims that the teen videotaped their sex in 2014 and disseminated the video to numerous people and caused the video to be posted on YouTube. Under Texas law, recording and promoting a sexual encounter without the person's consent can be a felony. 
She also claims sharing the video was, quote, extreme and outrageous conduct, end quote, that constituted an emotional infliction uh, or an intentional infliction of emotional distress. Um, what do you think about that? What do you think about that? A teacher has sex with a 17-year-old and is suing the 17-year-old for posting the video. Well, that's what you get for having sex with a 17-year-old. Stupid. Stupid. But the scary fact here is that this kid could face a felony conviction. I don't know. I think grossly unfair. We just talked a little while ago about the fact that the law is not fair. Well, how fair do you think this is that somebody tasked with protecting our children has sex with the 17-year-old, the 17-year-old does what most 17-year-olds would do, and they share that? I mean, posting on YouTube, and I'm not saying it's okay, but posting on YouTube today is the equivalent of telling your buddies in the locker room that you scored with the teacher. I, I just don't understand how this kid could be facing felony charges at all. And her claims for intentional infliction of emotional distress, are you kidding me? You're the teacher. You're the adult. Don't have sex with a 17-year-old and you won't have any emotional distress. I don't understand this. I've been involved in cases where teachers, um, in one case in particular, a female wrestling coach at a high school and teacher decided that it was a good idea that uh, while she's wrestling, how, how by the way, uh, and I'm not being sexist, but how a five foot two woman is the wrestling coach of boys is ever allowed blows my mind. High school boys in the height of adolescence having wearing the, their little singlets, right? And having a female five foot two wrestling coach. In what world does that make sense? Well, anyway, so this woman who was not bad looking, this is what blows my mind, not bad looking, seems like she could get a man her own age, decides that it's a good idea to wrestle with these boys and as she is showing them wrestling moves, to grab them and fondle them. She ended up getting arrested, getting sued, um... It happens all the time. But whose fault is it? Look, <clears throat> I'm not saying at all that kids don't have responsibility. But, and I'm not saying that it's right. You put an adult making advances at a 16, 17-year-old boy. You know, I would hope that my kids would say how oh, this isn't right morally and, 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 and otherwise. But, you put a 17-year-old kid in that position and, you know, you're really, I think, tempting them and I think that a lot of 17-year-old kids aren't going to know how to handle that. So should she be allowed to file a lawsuit? Well, we talk about this all the time. Yeah, I mean, you could file a lawsuit for anything as long as you have a good faith basis. So yeah, theoretically, go ahead and file the lawsuit, but it should be dismissed because of her own unlawful conduct. This idea of intentional infliction of emotional distress is crap. She brought this on herself. She had sex with a 17-year-old in, in high school. I don't know, stupid, stupid, stupid. What do you think? You think that this kid should face felony charges for showing the video on YouTube? 
Although, if he didn't want his parents to find out why you'd post it on YouTube, blows my mind. Uh, all right, we've got some stories here. I think I'm going to, um, to skip over some of these things. Let me just mention some of this. We were talking about the Senate blocking amped restrictions on refugees. I mean, that's a whole discussion in and of itself, and we are running a little long today, so I'm going to skip that. Suffice it to say, the refugee crisis, um, especially the Syrian refugee crisis, what we're talking about here, not going away anytime soon. The government's still trying to figure out what to do. Uh, you know, you've heard the rhetoric from uh, Donald Trump and the things that he's been saying while on the campaign trail about shutting down the borders and uh, not allowing Muslims to come into the country. I, I, you know, I think that he's gone way extreme, way off the deep end. I think that he's got some aspects of um, nationalism for the United States that make sense. But then I think that he says stupid things like I could walk down Fifth Ave and shoot people and I wouldn't lose any votes. Who, who says that? I'll, I'll tell you, I can't, I can't find one candidate this year uh, that says to me, you know, I've got faith in you. I, I'm going to be a good leader. I just can't find it. It's frightening, frightening, both on the Republican and Democratic side. I had heard that Bloomberg was thinking about running um, I don't know what kind of chances he would have, but Bloomberg was a pretty good mayor for New York City. I think that I'd probably lean towards him or at least see what he has to say, because we've got Governor Christie who shut down the bridge and there's no denying that. You've got Donald Trump who wants to shoot people down Fifth Ave because it won't affect his votes. Hillary Clinton deleting emails. Ben Carson, who's asleep all the time. I, I don't know. Very very, very scary where this country is going. Um, all right, we're also talking about biometric tracking in the U.S. for illegal, well, not illegal, but undocumented uh, aliens and then immigrants who are uh, coming and going. Uh, you know, we could talk about that at a later date. Let's jump into another story that I think is a little more interesting, and that is polygraph limits for sex offenders. So polygraph obviously is a lie detector. And uh, I, I think it's been consistently held throughout the country that lie detector results cannot conclusively be used as evidence for a conviction. So if you take a lie detector and then the prosecution says, we are basing our entire case on your lie detector results, that's not admissible evidence. And you can't convict somebody beyond a reasonable doubt based upon a polygraph test. However, polygraph tests are used post-conviction when somebody is released, especially in the sex offender world, to make sure that they're on the, state, uh, the straight and narrow. And this is a case that went up to the New Jersey State Appellate Division, and basically they were looking to see these five convicted sex offenders. They were looking to prove that the use of post-conviction post-release lie detector tests were, should not be used. And ultimately here, the appellate division said, no, they can't be used, as previously stated, to convict you. They can't be used as evidence to convict you. They can be used as evidence to see what's going on. And the other interesting factor here that they tried to fight against the, the, uh, the felons, uh, they tried to say that attorneys should be present post-conviction, post-release during the lie detector test, and the appellate division 
uh, said absolutely not. So um, here you've got post-conviction, post-release convicted sex offenders, and they are going to continue to require them to have uh, the lie detector test be taken without an attorney, and those results are just a measuring stick. All right, They are not meant to be used as evidence. So according to Courthouse News, while most states have banned the use of lie detector test results as evidence, nearly all states use the test for post-conviction screening. Polygraph test results rely on muscle and pulse sensors attached um, pulsed sensors, sorry, attached all over the subject's body. The tests are thought to have an accuracy rate as high as 90%, though critics have argued uh, that the error rate is as high as 29%. So obviously you can see why you cannot use polygraph results as evidence to convict somebody because you need to be con- you know, convicted with, with uh, beyond a reasonable doubt. Clear and, clear and convincing evidence is the standard for civil cases. Beyond a reasonable doubt is the standard for criminal cases. All right, next is the uh, state of New Jersey again looking to exclude 911 records from the state's New Jersey Open Public Records Act. So some of you might be familiar with FOIA, the Freedom of Information Act. This is New Jersey's version, the Open Public Records Act. And there's a bill pending that would prohibit the release of law enforcement camera recordings and 911 audio recordings or transcripts of a call under the Public Records Act. They wouldn't be uh, allowed. So, you know, I don't know what the philosophy behind this is. Why would we not want to produce that? I, I don't know. Um you know, we live in a society where it should be open. Now, I understand if you're going to argue that 911 calls should not be released under the uh, Freedom of Information Act or Public Records Act because of its impact on the victims. I understand that. That makes sense to me. But what about police recordings? I, I, don't, I don't know that I agree with that. We're talking about body cameras and police vehicle cameras. Why should we not have access to that under the public... Records Act. I don't I don't seem to connect that. Is it because we're afraid, like in so many other states, where we see the footage from police body cameras of them shooting unarmed people? Is that it? I don't know. But it doesn't make sense. So I'm not I'm not really happy with that idea. And I'd like to see more of the legislative intent behind that bill. Um, I agree you protect the victims at all costs. I believe that, yes. And I believe that the protection of the victims might trump our ability to access that. I I completely understand that. I don't know that you should have a blanket refusal now under the Open, Open Public Records Act to release police footage, body cameras and cruiser cameras. All right, what do you think about this? Atheists sue Congress yet again to remove In God We Trust from currency. Look, This has happened over and over and over again in various different ways, state level, federal level, you name it. Atheists are always suing to remove God from something, remove God from, you know, the schools, remove God from the the, the currency. Interestingly enough, 
I haven't seen atheists ban the use of currency, but I don't know. I think this is one of these waste of time lawsuits that cost us taxpayers dollars. Do I believe that you have the right to be an atheist? Absolutely. That's what this country is about. Freedom. So you don't want to believe in anything? Totally okay with me. I get that. I might not hang out with you, but I get it. No big deal. But now you want to sue to have In God We Trust removed from the currency. Well, let's go back to the history of In God We Trust and let's look at, and I, I, I know everybody says this is like a cop-out, but you got to go back to the Founding Fathers. What was this country built on? And it was built on faith. It was built on hope. And I personally say that no other group that believes in a higher being would have issues within God we trust because I might mean it to be the God of of the Bible. You might mean it to be Allah. Somebody else might mean it to be Buddha. But, you know, God can be used in, in a generic term for those people that are trying to fit this idea of in God we trust into, you know, their uh, acceptance of, of using this terminology on a dollar. Atheists, of course, can't because they don't believe in God. And so by showing the existence of God on a dollar bill, it offends them. What do you think about that? I think that um, it's not a winner. It never has been. And I think that, you know, you, you see these things all the time. And I think it's just a strain on the legal system. But I'd like to know what you guys think. Leave some comments this week in uh, the show notes. You can do that on Blog Talk Radio. I'm going to try to post snippets of this show up on YouTube this week, too. So leave comments. I'd like to hear what you think about that. All right. And I think, uh, finally, we will end with, well, not finally. I want to do one more thing before we go. But let's talk about Will Smith and skipping the Oscars. Diversity, again, at issue here. And I'm sure that most of you have seen that uh, his wife, Jada Pinkett Smith, decided to boycott, along with Spike Lee and other prominent African-American actors and actresses, boycott the Oscars because they believe that there is not a diverse enough pool that no African-American candidates were chosen uh, for the Oscars. I want to know what you think about that. It's interesting because I think going back to the 80s, uh, I remember, I think it was... Maybe Eddie Murphy um, had had made a comment. Maybe I'm wrong about that, but made a comment about, well, you know, it'll be another 20 years before an African American wins the Oscars. You know, it, it's an interesting point, and I think that um, it's something that has to be looked at. Now you've got to wonder: is it because the movies didn't? have enough diversity in the cast? I, I don't know. But I, I think it's something that you've got to look at because there is some truth to the fact um, about the lack of diversity. It's interesting. Now, talking about Hollywood and um, diversity, I have to say that the new Star Wars movie I think was wonderfully done and I think that shows a lot of diversity in that movie. Um, you've got female heroines, stars of the movie. You've got African-Americans. You've got, I mean, uh, John Boyega was phenomenal. I thought was excellent. And 
this goes back to what I said at the top of the show when we were talking about Flint and this idea of environmental racism. My kids don't see the difference between people. They're all people. You know, they go to a, a movie, I took them to see Star Wars, and they see John Boyega, and they don't say to themselves, hey, that African-American guy. They say, you know, this character, or him as an actor. And they don't see uh, Finn, um, not Finn, Ray, um, can't remember her name off the top of my head, uh, but they don't see her and say, oh, you know, she, she's a, a female. They just see people as people. And I wish that there was something that we could do to take the innocence of youth as kids grow up and not jade them and not force them into being, uh, you know, forced to look at things in, in, in a jaded, racist way. There's no, there's no reason, and I know that what I'm going to say is not going to change anything, but there's no reason for racism. None. None. I mean, we are Americans. We should be a unit, one American country. And the infighting that happens. But, you know, look, you can't change it. Take a look at your office next time you're at work. Look at the issues that arise out of your office and forget the idea of race. Just look at the caste system that is set up between supervisors, managers, employees. You know, look at the way it works. And you can see how there's no level playing field. And you can see how people can become jaded and, and angry it's unfortunate. I don't know that there's anything that can be done about it, but you know, I, I think that there's racism should just be something that's non-existent. And I wish that there was a way to make that happen. I wish that we could just see people for people, for what they are, for who they are, and not look at them as anything other than Americans or whatever country you're from. I, I don't, I don't see it. it it's, it's sad. Sad but true. Um, you know, and that's why I go back to this idea of the New York Times article concerning Flint, Michigan. So does the New York Times, with their claims of environmental racism, is New York Times contributing to the, 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 the racial divide by putting out a story like that? Why didn't New York Times say Flint, Michigan is a result of of the government not caring about poor people. I don't know. I don't I don't have the answer to it. Um, I'd love to hear what you guys think about that in the New York Times and their comments on environmental racism. I don't care what you say. What happened in Flint is just something that's so obscene. Look, let's end on a, um, a positive note. Well, I think it's positive, even though some of these things aren't positive. I'm a big Disney fan. I love... Um, I love Disney World. I love, you know, the whole, the whole thing. I really do. I think that Disney is a wonderful company, and I think that from I don't work there, so I mean I don't know. It could suck if you work there, but from a a consumer standpoint, certainly one of my favorite places. I went there on my honeymoon years and years ago, and take my kids there. I love it. It's a lot of fun. And now I think with the inclusion of Star Wars, it's going to be really exciting. I happen to be a very large. Star Wars fan. I've been uh, a Star Wars fan since I was little. I remember going to see the movies and the drive-in drive, the drive -in and, um, you know, going out and getting the figure. I, I still have my original set of figures and stuff, so I love it. So I'm really excited about that. But what I love to do is I like to look at the Central Florida quarterly injury reports because they're interesting and a little bit of fun in a very um, sort of... Uh, 
off the cuff way. I mean, it's not funny when people get hurt, but it's funny to see. Funny's not the right word. Oh, I'm digging myself a hole today. It's just interesting to see what some of the uh, injury reports are. So this is the injury report just released today for the last quarter of 2015. So there were seven injuries reported at Disney World. A 71-year-old man didn't feel well after riding Seven Dwarfs Mine Train. Um, you know, they list everything. So somebody gets a little nauseous on a ride, they're going to list it. 75-year-old man rode Big Thunder Mountain and then experienced pain, tremors, and numbness in his right arm. 30-year-old woman fell while getting on Pirates of the Caribbean. 43-year-old woman had a seizure on the same ride but suffers from a pre-existing condition. Over at Animal Kingdom, a 24-year-old man had a seizure after riding Dinosaur. A 69-year-old man had chest pain and dizziness after riding Expedition Everest. A 27-year-old woman at uh, Typhoon Lagoon got a laceration. Uh, Now we'll jump over to Universal. Universal's Islands of Adventure. Two men were uh, both experiencing motion sickness on Harry Potter. One was 50 and one was 55. Uh, a 17-year-old male was anxious and experienced shortness of breath on Harry Potter Escape from Gringotts. A 35-year-old woman experienced neck pain while on the Hollywood Rip Ride Rocket. A 21-year-old woman was motion sick while on E.T. How do you get motion sick on E.T.? That's a question. And a 66-year-old woman was dizzy on Despicable Me. Well, I can see that. Uh, let's see. 42-year-old woman over at SeaWorld had a seizure while riding Manta. What's really good here from a legal perspective is this. None of these injuries seem to be caused by negligence of the theme parks. And that's so interesting because from a, a, a loss or a risk management perspective, I think that small business today can learn a tremendous amount from modeling some of the... Um, approaches that the Orlando, the Central Florida theme parks follow because they are dealing in millions and millions of people and, uh, per day. And when you look at the injury reports that are out there, sure, is there one that slipped through the cracks? Yeah, but you know what? Believe me, when the guy lost his fingers on Pirates of the Caribbean because he stuck his hand out of the boat, even though they tell you, don't put your hand out of the boat, um, that was all over the news. So if there was something significant, it would be here, it would be reported. But all of these reports are motion sickness, dizziness, and those are things that you can very easily experience on some of these motion simulation rides. But it's wonderful to see the amount, the volume of people that these theme parks are handling on a daily basis. And this is the fourth quarter injury report. So as small business owners, I think if you look to mirror and mimic and learn what some of these Central Florida theme parks do to prevent injuries, I think you'd go a long way towards making your own local small business, mid-sized business, even a large business, a lot more um, protected from, from injury, whether it's injury from employees and workers' comp claims or injuries from your customers, your consumers, your clients, I think there's a lot that you can learn from this because this is pretty amazing. Uh, really, there's nothing here other than some dizziness and stuff. And so, good job from the uh, for the Central Florida theme parks. 
All right, that's going to do it. I know we went over a little bit today. Sorry about that. Um, but I think it was worth getting through the discussion on Flint, Michigan. Very troubling uh, indeed. That is going to do it for today. A few notes before I sign off. Make sure that you subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or Blog Talk Radio. Don't forget to subscribe to the YouTube channel. Check out utlradio.com, the brand new redesigned site, completely redone. Um, I think really cool, so I'd love to hear what you guys think about it. Uh, We're in the process of updating our free app. It is available in a um, a, a, a pre-final release stage. Um, There were some transformations that we were making to the app, but the app will allow you to ask questions directly from your phone. You can type in your legal or business question and they'll be answered. I also have access to social media as well as to the podcast. You can listen to it directly on your phone. Um, We are working on a Meerkat uh, streaming feature so that you can watch our Meerkat streams or at least know about it directly from there. Uh, So you can check that out as well. And uh, I think the most important thing is to understand what we're trying to do here, which is to help people out there uh, take charge of their lives and handle, learn to handle some of their own business and legal matters to represent yourself, to be able to compete with a lawyer on the other side when maybe you can't afford it. I'll go back to something I said uh, a few weeks ago in a video. There are five reasons why you'd want to represent yourself in a lawsuit Those five reasons are, A, you don't have the money, all right? That's straightforward. B, you have the money, but the amount of money you're seeking to recover is less than what it would cost you to pay for a lawyer. In other words, you want to sue somebody who owes you $1,000, but it would would cost you $1,500 to $2,000 to hire a lawyer to do that. That doesn't make any sense. Therefore, you'd want to do it yourself. Number three, you can't win your case. For example, if you owe credit card debt, you know you owe it, there's no defense, and you need to buy yourself some time in order to make a settlement offer or to at least come, you know, get some money together and and be able to pay it. Number four, you can't uh, lose your lawsuit. Let's say it's the reverse where you lend somebody money, they sign a document, and I mean, it's crystal clear that they owe you the money. You can't lose. Maybe you wouldn't want to have a lawyer. And the fifth reason is that a lawyer won't take your case. I see this often in employment cases or civil rights claims. You've got to be able to say, all right, I believe in my case. I'm going to do it myself. So those are the five reasons. I'll put a link uh, in the show notes to the video just in case you're interested in watching that video. Um, but you know, I think the, the, the point here, the takeaway is utlradio.com is meant to be a DIY legal and business solution, a self-help resource center. So check that out and pass that information along. All right, so we are now back on our regular schedule. We had some um, shortened schedules earlier in the month, primarily because we were revamping what we were doing. Let me just give you the rundown real quick, and then I'm going to head out. So Mondays, today, obviously, Business and Legal Week in Review. Tuesdays, Legal q and I'm going to answer one legal question. Wednesday, Business q and I answer one business question. On Thursday, we have changed up our format from the entrepreneur interview format to a very exciting live legal Q&A. We're also going to touch on some law basics and some other things. So what we did last week for the first show is I opened up the phone lines. We actually did it live, going back to the live broadcast. 
and we'll answer your questions live. So if you've got a business question or a legal question and you want an answer, call into the show on Thursday. Right now we're doing it at 10 a.m. I did put um, some, some requests out there to find out from you guys whether or not 10 a.m. Eastern time works for you. So I'm waiting to hear uh, some responses to those polls, but that's out there as well. You can call in. We also answer, I like last week, I think we did eight questions, eight legal questions. So you can check that out. If you want to call into the show on Thursday, because Thursday right now is the only live show. Thursday, 347-855-8831 is the call-in number. You'll be put in the queue, and we will uh, pick you up and, and, and answer your question live on air. Now, if you want to have your questions submitted and you don't want to be on the live show, you can do it in so many ways. You can email me. You can call. You can post it on Facebook, Twitter. You can leave a comment in YouTube. There's so many ways to do it. And the other thing you could do is you could use the website, the SpeakPipe widget, which is available on the site. It's all obviously free. And you can ask your question directly from your computer. There's a form submission you could send your question in. Or if you download the free app, which is available on iTunes or the Android market, then you can ask your question directly from your phone. So there's so many ways to do it. We want to make it as accessible as possible. I think we've done that. So uh, keep your questions coming, and I'm going to keep answering them. We have a lot of things that we're going to do this year, Uh, a lot of exciting things. We're going to show some deposition prep. We're going to show some actual um, legal interaction. It's going to be a lot of fun this year and hopefully a wonderful learning experience. So uh, I'm glad to have you guys on board. We're also back streaming on Meerkat. We're going to try to stream on Meerkat as much as possible, as much as we can do. Um, I've told the Meerkat audience that for a while I had switched over to Periscope and just didn't find the same sense of, of community uh, or fellowship. So we're back on Meerkat, excited to be there. We're going to be streaming some of these broadcasts on Meerkat as well as uh, filming of some videos and some behind-the-scenes stuff. So if you're interested in that, don't forget you can also sign up for the newsletter, which is uh, sign-up sheet is available at utlradio.com. And finally, there is the free guide, the free download, the top 10 legal writing tips for non-lawyers. So check that out. That's at utlradio.com. That's going to do it. Thank you all. I'm uh, looking forward to your comments on some of the stories that we talked about. We'll talk about them Uh, on Thursday's show, probably, after we get through the live legal Q&A. That leaves us a little time to talk about some of the comments that we received this week and some of the other things that are interesting. So I will look forward to reading your comments and then talking to you on Thursday. Tune in tomorrow for legal Q&A, Wednesday for business Q&A, Thursday for the live legal Q&A and law basics. Friday, we'll be back for the weekly wrap-up. That's going to do it for me. Hope you have a great day, a wonderful week. Stick around. Don't forget, tell your friends, your family, your colleagues, and let them know about utlradio.com, your business success and legal information station. I'll see you next time.
savings on new and previously leased furnishings. That's right, huge savings. At Court Furniture Clearance Center, choose from our wide variety of new and previously leased furniture and decor for your home or office. You'll find sofas from $199.99 and more. Everything in our 9,000 square foot showroom is Court certified, guaranteed, and in stock. Ready for delivery or to take home today. Visit our Chandelier Court Furniture Clearance Center at 13946 Lee Jackson Memorial Highway or go online at courtclearancefurniture.com. Mention Radio 20 and get 20% off.